Good day. I'm Martin Webb and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. The Climate Report broadcasts and podcasts on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Today's Climate Report, we talk about the multifaceted crisis of communication underpinning our global climate challenge, whether it's uninformed newspaper opinions, coded social media memes created by business and industry, a lack of science news based on facts, or even personal catastrophizing. We're going to talk about the crisis of communication. All Climate Report shows are archived at KVMR's podcast page for re-listening and sharing. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, or would like links to some of the news items that we read today, feel free to email Climate Report at kvmr.org. We're going to start off with an interesting article in The Guardian on some new research out of Ohio State University. It finds that truthful climate reporting shifts viewpoints, but only briefly, this study finds. Ohio State University researchers gauged responses to climate science versus skepticism and suggest that facts bear repeating. The article says people's views of the climate crisis can be influenced by the media, according to new research. But scientific, accurate scientific reporting only has limited impact on people who already have a fixed political viewpoint, particularly if it's opposed to climate action. Researchers who ran an experiment in the U.S. to find out how people responded to media reporting on the climate found that people's views of climate science really were shifting if they read reporting that accurately reflected scientific findings. They were also more willing to back policies that would tackle the problem. But the effect quickly faded, especially once people were exposed to other media afterwards that continued to cast doubt on climate science. This is according to a paper that's being published tomorrow in the peer-reviewed journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Thomas Wood, associate professor of political science at Ohio State University, who led the study, said, quote, it is not the case that the American public does not respond to scientifically informed reporting when they are exposed to it. But even factually accurate science reporting recedes from people's frame of reference very quickly, end quote. He suggested one way to reinforce the impacts of accurate science reporting was to repeat it more often. He says it was striking to us how amenable the subjects in our study were to what they read in scientifically accurate reporting about climate change in our study, but what they learned faded very quickly. He said what we found suggests that people need to hear the same accurate messages about climate change again and again. If they only hear it once, it recedes very quickly. Well, the researchers recruited just under 3,000 participants who were first asked to read media articles that reflected accurate climate science in the autumn of 2020. Then in the next stage of the experiment, they showed the same participants different things depending on which group they were in. One group was asked to read from another scientific article. 
while another group was given an opinion piece that cast doubt on climate science. Another group was given an article that discussed climate crisis in partisan ways as a them versus us debate. And then lastly, there was a group given a placebo article on something completely unrelated, such as cookery. So again, the first time that they were shown something was accurate climate science. Then the second time they were put in one of four groups, more science, climate skepticism, climate is all about a partisan fight, or something completely different. And in every stage, they were questioned on their attitudes to policy and their understanding of climate science. They were asked if they believed climate change was happening and caused by people. After each stage, they were also asked whether they favored renewable energy. After the very first stage, when everyone was exposed to very accurate scientific news reporting on the crisis, some people who had been skeptical of climate science reported a change to their attitudes and were more willing to consider government action on climate breakdown and renewable energy. However, after being exposed to the following articles, such people had largely reverted to their previous stance. The researchers concluded exposure to science content improves factual accuracy, but the improvements are short-lived and are no longer detectable by the end of our study. We find that exposure to opinion content that is skeptical of science can completely neutralize or even reverse any gains in accuracy. They say that contrary to expectations, the group that was just exposed to the partisan conflict side of things didn't see a decrease in factual accuracy. But they do say that immediately after exposure to good science reporting, coverage about climate change increases support for government action to address climate change. But this effect fades over time. And the interesting note in the study is that the impacts of reading material that cast doubt on climate science had a greater impact on Republicans and those who were already inclined to deny climate science. The research was conducted in the U.S. where the reporting of science is often strongly politically inflected and where many attitudes appear to reflect a partisan approach even to basic facts. Most Republicans, for instance, the article ends by saying, still believe the 2020 presidential election was in fact won by Donald Trump and not Joe Biden. So here on KVMR with Climate Reporting, we endeavor to bring you something unique and special and tailored more to our listening area because you can find so much of the regular science reporting all over the internet for those that do want to be aware. But what I'd like to do is show how this opinion-based climate reporting can actually spoil a community, our community. Because I'd like to take a look here at a piece that was just published in The Union this week. It's an opinion piece from their regular contributor, George Boardman, called Electric Vehicle Plan Unrealistic. And largely it's an opinion piece that is either misleading or actually divorced from some basic facts. And that's why it is an opinion piece. But unfortunately, in a rural local area like ours, where there's not a lot of people, we don't have a newspaper that does a lot of reporting on national and international climate news. It tends to just focus on the community. 
So it's our local readers of the newspaper will only get these types of opinions. Let's read some of what was printed in the paper versus what we've actually read here as factual science-based news articles on the climate report. George Boardman is taking issues with Governor Gavin Newsom, who he says once you driving an electric car by 2030 and the transition from fossil fuels should be easy. George says those pricey electric cars they sell now, prices will be affordable and competitive, possibly. Anxious about getting the car charged? Cars charged car charging stations will be as ubiquitous as gas stations. Sufficient electric power, wind and solar will get the job done. Well, he's saying all this sarcastically and skeptically. And let's talk about what's being put forth in the news media on climate reporting and make sure that we all understand how important it is to be aware of facts. And as this recent research shows, it is helpful to repeat basic scientific facts because the effects of them don't last very long for the population that is skeptical. For example, in the piece here in the local newspaper, several points are lobbed at this plan to go electric as potential pitfalls and hurdles. First, he says there's the cost of the vehicles we're talking about. Despite the tax rebates and other incentives available to drivers today, electric cars are mainly a wealthy person's indulgence. Let's stop there. And let's remind our listeners that we've talked about news and a lot of research and studies that show the cost of vehicles is about equal, especially because most people finance vehicles, they don't pay cash for them. So the average vehicle difference in a price between EV and a gas car is about $10,000 right now in the United States. There's a federal tax credit that's worth $7,500. There are also different state incentives across America that bring that down to parity. But there was a big study that looked at several different models of vehicles, from Nissan to Volvo to the Ford F-150 truck. They looked at the monthly cost of financing the more expensive vehicle, coupled with the lower operating costs. They looked at all 50 states, and they analyzed on monthly payment versus monthly payment how much does it actually cost? They looked at the different prices of electricity all across the country. What they discovered is that in 26 states, it's actually cheaper right out of the gate to own an electric vehicle from day one. What they found is that in other states, it was about equal. And in the handful of states where the monthly cost of buying and owning a new EV versus the monthly cost of buying and owning a similar gas car, the price premium, $15 a month. Hardly a wealthy person's indulgence. According to most research, EVs aren't for the wealthy. They may be more for people who are paying attention. And gas cars, perhaps, are for people who are just less informed. The next take here in the article is... How expensive these are, actually. George says that the major auto companies know the real money is in high-end models. If you're looking to save money, try the new Toyota BZ4X. At a starting price of $42,000, he says it is toward the lower end of the range, according to the Wall Street Journal. Need a pickup truck? George says the Rivian starts at $67,500. That's right, according to George's article in our local newspaper, 
The low end of an electric car is 42,000, and if you want an electric truck, almost $70,000. But if you're a listener here at the Climate Report, you know that neither of those are actually accurate. The low end price for electric vehicles is around $30,000. And when it comes to electric pickups, how can no one be aware that the country's most popular vehicle for the last 40 years has been the Ford F-150 pickup and that they have turned it all electric? We've talked about it here, the F-150 Lightning. 200,000 have been made in the first batch, and they've been sold out. It comes with a battery pack that's equal to 10 Tesla Powerwalls and can run a home during an outage for up to a week. What does that starting price come at? $39,974. Remember, here in the local newspaper, you're going to read someone say the low-end cars are 42000 and pickups are 70000 when in reality, you could get a fantastic electric pickup for less than 40000 But then it goes on, talking about the battery materials, which are an issue and are constantly being looked at. Of course, digging for oil and petroleum refining is much worse. What he tends to talk about a lot is Tesla, of course, which a lot of people focus on. But there are a lot of other vehicles out there using different types of technologies. There is the issue of charging anxiety, George says. Finding some place to charge your car before it runs out of electricity. He points out something interesting. If you'd like to hear something that sounds scary, Cool the Earth, a San Rafael nonprofit, recently spent three weeks sending people to 181 public charging stations in nine Bay Area counties, a total of 657 plug-in kiosks. Everyone was tasked with charging each one for at least two minutes. Nine Bay Area counties, 181 stations that had almost 700 separate plug-in ports. Well, the testers found that 23% of them were inoperable or had payment failures or broken cables. Another 5%, the cables were too short to reach the vehicle's charging inlets. He says no Tesla stations were used in the test. Well, it's important to note that based on these figures describing the glass as partially empty, more than 75% of the public charging stations worked just fine. But what's important to know is if you are an EV owner, you will know this as well. And if you read the news you would know that most EV owners don't charge at public stations. Most EV owners charge every two to three days. Most of the charging is done at home or at work. And in this study, no one ran out of electricity and was stranded. They all were able to find a nearby place to charge. So it sounds scary, but it's not. Then there's the discussion. George is really concerned here in our local community that California is going to need another one to two million charging stations to service all these new vehicles. That's according to the State Energy Commission. And he says that assumes that we can generate enough electricity, something we're barely doing now. Have you noticed how we're supposed to curb our electricity use between 4 and 9 p.m.? Well, this is conflating a lot of issues. And if you've listened to the Climate Report, where we have accurate 
scientific, factual-based reporting, you know that the utility companies are actually very involved in rolling out charging stations across the country as fast as possible. Why? Because it sells more of their product. And having 23% of these public stations having issues, that's something that, of course, is easily fixed. When it comes to meeting the state's needs, there's a lot of concern that how are we going to be able to power all these vehicles when we can't keep the lights on now? If you've listened to the climate report here on KVMR KVMR with accurate science reporting, you know that study after study shows that California can easily achieve 100% renewable energy by 2030 and be able to have an increase of 60% in power demand for all the EVs and heat pumps and that the power price will actually be cheaper than if it wasn't 100% renewable renewable energy. This was a recent study done with NREL data the Union of Concerned Scientists did. So yes, we occasionally do have some outages in the heat of the summer in the middle of the day. Gas cars and electric vehicles both have the same problem. They're unable to refuel, and they can only drive as far is what they have in their tank. There really is no difference between those two, other than EV owners can have a supply of power with solar and batteries at home, while homeowners usually aren't keeping big giant tanks full of flammable gasoline on their property. Well, what's interesting too is George also brings something to our community that might make you worry, where he then goes across the country and says, what are they going to do about the fact that the federal government would like to have charging stations every 50 miles? There are people quoted in Montana saying that, you know, even if there's an exit, is there anything on the electrical grid anywhere close to that to make it viable? For example, George says the 70-mile stretch on I-80 between Gillette and Buffalo, Wyoming has no gas stations. There's physically nothing there, says the director of the Wyoming Transportation Department. Well, folks, if you live here in Nevada County, you're aware that there's such a thing as off-grid power. And so building an off-grid, safe charging station every 50 miles with batteries and solar and wind could actually create jobs and allow people to drive across the country with EVs. It is completely doable. You don't need the grid to cross a highway every 50 miles. But then in the end, there is actually one thing that George does say that does comport with our accurate scientific news reporting here. Says that American car manufacturers are lobbying Congress to lift the cap on the number of EVs a company can sell before their cars are no longer eligible for the $7,500 tax credit. If you weren't aware, and we've talked about it here, Most EVs get a $7,500 federal tax credit, but if a manufacturer sells too many of their cars, if they're successful, once they get to a certain limit, then they no longer qualify. So for example, Teslas have been so popular, they don't qualify for the $7,500 tax credit. However, most all of the other electric vehicles out on the market do. And manufacturers are asking that arbitrary limit to be changed because it is rather arbitrary. So in the end, what George recommends is he says the average car on the road today is 12 years old. We're just 13 years from 2035. He says, if you're planning to buy a new car in the next year or two, I suggest you hang on to it. Well, you know what? 
that's someplace that actually does comport with scientific fact, that if you don't need a new car, that you shouldn't buy one for the climate. However, if you are looking to buy a vehicle, all of the basic research and studies that are based on scientific facts and math show that today you could purchase a brand new EV and the monthly payments and the cost of operating would be less than a gas car right from day one. If you'd like a link to that article and that study, you can send an email to climatereport at kvmr.org. Point being, though, is again, the very first article was talking about a new study saying that people who are skeptical and Republicans, that when they read negative opinion about climate, renewable energy, and greenhouse gas emission-related policy, they're against it. But when exposed to actual scientific facts and news that reflects reality, they tend to change their minds. But the effect fades quickly. So that's one of the reasons why KVMR has the climate report, in order to help counter these opinion pieces that this study is exactly talking about, that will make the job harder to try and deal with the climate crisis. Along the same lines, it's also then worth talking about social media memes, because there are concerted efforts by both fossil fuel companies and the beef industry to push back against the messaging that says we need to use less of their products. There is a local social media group called Nevada County Common Sense, where someone had posted something making fun of electric vehicles. Uh, there was another meme that I came across that says when Bill Gates takes his private jet from Seattle to New York and back, he burns enough fuel to supply our cattle operation for six months. In that si same time frame, we produce enough beef for 800 Americans for the entire year. Hey, elites, cows are not the problem. If you're seeing this type of social media, just know, obviously, that that is a meme that's created by a business that has a financial interest. But what's important for news media to report on when it comes to the climate is to work to try and make it less about us versus them, because we're all on this planet together. And what's interesting about memes like this is we can break it down exactly like George Boardman's opinion piece. It turns out that the average American, based on reporting that we've done here on the Climate Report, right now consumes more than 55 pounds of beef a year, and it's going up. That translates to 1,500 kilograms a year of greenhouse gas emissions. 1,500 kilograms a year. Right now, the average American, based on our news reporting and research, flies one and a half flights a year. That equals about 750 kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions. So the average American is eating twice the emissions that they are flying. And there are hundreds of millions of average Americans, but there is a tiny fraction of elites. And as we've reported before, you could get rid of all of the elites and the 1%, and we are all still eating and driving and consuming our way to the edge of the planet's limits. We can act quicker, according to research, and we've talked a lot about the impacts of meat eating. So what's interesting is to not conflate meat with beef, We've done reporting where, that shows that beef is the hardest on the planet, based on science and math. Next comes chicken, then comes pork. 
And we've also talked a lot about the studies that say all that some people need to do is just shift downward from beef to chicken, and we would have a very large impact on our food emissions here in the country. So these types of memes are also what this study has been talking about, that when people read opinions and memes and skeptical and us versus them, it degrades the willingness to pursue action if they don't hear enough climate science news. So we're happy to try and bring more climate science news related here to the airwaves. And we want to end this with something that talks about catastrophizing. When stressed, we catastrophize, but we can learn to calm calm our irrational fears. This is an article written by uh, Zoe Brickman, author of Baby Unplugged, One Mother's Search for Balance, Reason, and Sanity in the Digital Age. She says, the first day I returned to work after maternity leave, I walked to the office, racked with a fear I knew to be highly unlikely, that our new and loving caregiver would push the stroller across the street at the precise moment a reckless driver ran the light. I imagined the sound of tires screeching. I started to sweat and my heart rate quickened. And then when I got to the office, I took a deep breath, told myself to pull it together and did. What I was doing, I later learned, is common to new parents. In a heightened emotional state, you're more prone to what psychologists call catastrophizing or experiencing intrusive thoughts, imagining the worst-case scenario, however improbable it might be. They came at me full throttle when I became a mother, according to studies. In moderation, while they're certainly not fun, these fantasies are healthy and normal. They're rooted deep in our bodies, an adaptive trait, an evolutionary defense mechanism that helps us prepare for the worst and protect our most valuable possession. If I stay inside the cave and obsess about a mastodon attacking my baby while gulping back my cave wine and binge-watching cave paintings, the lower the chances I wander out onto the tundra and have a tusked encounter, in other words. But what isn't healthy? Being bombarded with such a relentless onslaught of tragic events that the condition of simply living in today's world makes these feelings chronic. So chronic our brain's ability to process uncertainty and anxiety might be, might be diminishing as we speak. First, some stress stats. Ready for science news reporting? According to a March poll released by the American Psychological Association, inflation, supply chain problems, global warming, global uncertainty, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine on top of a two-year pandemic have pushed America's stress to, quote, alarming and unprecedented levels that will challenge our ability to cope, the CEO of the American Psychological Association said. And unhealthy behaviors that began in COVID's first year, more drinking, less exercise, become entrenched in the second, suggesting that the path towards a collective recalibration may be far way off. Well, the nuts and bolts is there are more primitive parts of the brain that control our basic functions, like our heart rate or rush of fear when we see a snake, and more evolved regions that execute top-down control, allow us to focus, plan ahead, and inhibit bad impulses. When we get stressed or feel out of control, for example, in regards to the climate crisis, we shift down to our primitive coping mechanisms, ramping up our fear responses and shutting off the prefrontal cortex. The higher the levels of arousal or stress, the stronger those primitive circuits get, the less affected you feel by things that might normally give you pleasure, and the more things feel threatening or sad. 
As Arnston explained to me, your brain is wired to activate its fear system if it sees someone else is afraid. So when horrifying news blows up our phones, we instinctively empathize. Combine that with the new normal of living in a constant state of COVID-related uncertainty, a political environment that can feel hopeless and intransigent, climate change and heat waves and weather storms, you get a perfect neurological situation that has everyone worried. Well, can we get those circuits back? Research suggests yes. If we spend time in calm environments in which we feel in control. There are active ways to combat our new reality, many of which we know but don't pursue. Exercise can strengthen the prefrontal cortex. Deep breathing can calm one's arousal systems. Seeking out joy and humor in the forms of books or music can help. Another simple suggestion? Researcher Arnston said, do something that helps you feel more efficacious, even if it's very small. Oftentimes, helping someone else can help jumpstart that. Well, that's all for today's Climate Report broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For daily news headlines in between broadcasts, including heaps of good news and tips, there is a Climate Report social media page. For questions or comments or links to articles or research discussed here, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. 